Thank you, ladies. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter number 23. Luke chapter 23 is where we'll be this morning. I always enjoy our singers here at Bible Baptist Church for different reasons. And uh, my wife and I always have an extra bit of pride in our heart when it comes to some of the young people, whether the young men or the young ladies that, have, that sing for us. You can remember when they were all teenagers and now they're all married, some of them having kids. And um, their selection in men probably isn't the best, but the Lord's gracious and kind and merciful as they work through that. Luke chapter number 23 is where we'll be this morning. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word that was in the beginning was none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and that's pretty much all we get from eternity past. We turn to Genesis chapter 1, and we see Jesus Christ's ministry starting in Genesis going forward, which is creation. And so if you put those two verses together, you see Jesus Christ from eternity past, and Jesus Christ from that point forward to His ministry today. And Jesus Christ is the most significant person to have ever lived by far. We know that in John chapter 1 that the Word was Jesus Christ because the Bible tells us in that same chapter that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We also know that the Word was Jesus Christ because Revelation 19 tells us that Jesus' name is the Word of God. And so Jesus coming into the world is the single greatest point in human history. It's so significant that our entire calendar system is dated from his very birth, before Christ and in the year of our Lord. Now, modern scholars have tried to mockingly take Christ out of our dating system by changing it from B.C., which means before Christ, to B.C.E., which means before common era. But I would submit to you that you will never be able to erase Jesus from history. For the very word history quite literally is his story. Jesus Christ was the prophet that all the prophets prophesied about. He is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of Genesis chapter 3. Jesus Christ is unlike any person to have ever lived. Jesus Christ, who he himself created language, is indescribable by human language. Jesus Christ, who created time, is quite literally the timeless one. Jesus Christ is the uncreated creator. In fact, he is so significant that in the book of John, chapter number 21, it gives us a little glimpse into all that Jesus did for us and for the world when John tells us in John 21 that if all the things that Jesus did would be written down, John says, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Think about that. I I take that statement to be literal. John says the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's a significant statement. If we wrote down all the things that Jesus did before creation, if we wrote down all the things that he did before time even was, if we wrote down all the things that Jesus did during creation, if we wrote down all the things that Jesus Christ did that goes into keeping time, space, and matter functioning in perfect unison today, if we wrote down all things that Jesus did 
for the eternal redemption of mankind and every single person that's ever lived, listen, the world itself could not contain those books. Jesus Christ is quite literally the greatest person to have ever lived. And since Jesus is God, any story in the life of Christ is worthy of our attention. But this morning I'm drawn to a time in the life of Christ where Jesus was in the process of paying for the sins of the entire world. In our text in Luke chapter 23, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He had finished his earthly ministry. He had already been betrayed by his enemy. He had already been denied by his best friend. He had already had six illegal trials. And now he hangs on a cruel Roman cross with the weight of sin placed upon him. And if you study the six hours that Jesus hung on the cross that day, it appears as though Jesus hung in the daylight for three hours, which was under the scorn and derision of mankind. And then it appears as though Jesus hung in the darkness for three hours under the scorn and derision of God. Because all the statements that Jesus made from the cross are either during the first three hours of daylight or they're at the very last moment of the three hours of darkness before he dismissed his spirit. We have no interaction between him and people. We have no interaction between him and God in those last three hours of darkness other than the last moment of his life. And it is while Jesus is on the cross in the most extreme torment that he takes the time to have a conversation with somebody that you and I on our best day wouldn't have a conversation with. You see, there were three Roman crosses set up that fateful day outside the city of Jerusalem. And three different men hung on those three crosses. Let's read about them. Let's read about one of them uh, in Luke chapter 23. I, actually, I guess they'll all be uh, listed here. The Bible says in verse 39 of Luke chapter 23, verse 39, the Bible says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost, thou not, dost not thou fear God? seeing thou art in the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened. And the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. We see here a glimpse into this conversation that we'll look at today between Jesus Christ and these two dying men. Remember, there are three Roman crosses there set up. Two of the men were called malefactors. They're called that in the Old Testament, and they're called that here in Luke 23. Let's look at the man, the first man who was dying. The Bible says in verse 39, and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Notice the word railed. That, that, that is often uh, other places translated blasphemy or blasphemously spoken. This man was deriding Jesus. He was uh, uh, spewing blasphemy in the face of Jesus. You see, one of the men on the cross was none other than the man that would die and go to hell. Another man was w the person that we call uh, the, the dying thief or the repentant thief. And we see him in the next couple of verses. But the cross in the middle where Jesus was, think about this. There was a cross that was made for a man that day. 
It was set up for a man by the name of Barabbas. He's actually not listed here, but quite literally, Jesus took Barabbas' spot on the cross. And that cross in the middle was for the worst criminal of that day. As bad as the first criminal was that we just read about, Barabbas was actually worse. Barabbas, of course, was the condemned murderer that was notoriously freed by Pontius Pilate. The Bible tells us in the four different Gospels that record his name, tells us that Barabbas was an aggressive robber who had led some sort of insurrection against the Roman occupiers of the Jewish land. Barabbas was likely the worst criminal of that day. And even though he was a murderer and a robber, the Jews seemed to have liked him better than Jesus. And why not? Barabbas seems to have led an insurrection against the Roman occupiers that the Jews hated. You see, the Jews hated Rome, and they probably loved anybody that would fight against Rome. On the other hand, Jesus was probably viewed by, as weak by many of those same Jewish leaders. Whereas Barabbas led an insurrection, Jesus was the one that said, hey, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry his stuff a mile, you go with him too. And so the Jews, from their perspective, no doubt would have liked Barabbas and his perspective and his temperament way better than Jesus. The interesting thing about Jesus and Barabbas is the name that they share. You see, on the surface, the name Jesus and the name Barabbas couldn't be further apart. But if we consider the name Barabbas and we consider his name and what it means, it's kind of interesting. You see, the name Barabbas is a, has a prefix, the prefix bar, B-A-R. You may remember this prefix. Jesus Christ referred to Simon as Simon bar Jonah. He's the son of Jonah. You may remember the blind man who's referred to as blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus' name, Bartimaeus, that, word, that, that prefix bar means son of. So to, uh, blind Bartimaeus was quite literally the son of Timaeus. And so in the Bible, in the New Testament, the prefix on a name, bar, simply means the son of. And so Barabbas was the son of a person named Abbas. But the last part of his name is also interesting. You see, Barabbas' last part of his name is Abbas, Abba. And if you remember Galatians chapter 4, the Bible says that God sent forth his son, I'm sorry, God for, sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Abbas, Abba, it's the same word. You may remember in Romans chapter 8 where the Bible says, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, therefore, means father. Bar means son. Abba means father. And that's exactly why Jesus in Matthew chapter 14 referred to God as Abba, Father. And so that middle cross, think about this, was quite literally made for the son of the father. Barabbas didn't hang on that cross. Another son of another father would hang on that cross, the son of God. And instead of a condemned, robbing murderer hanging on that cross, a man hung there who knew no sin. The Bible says that this man, Jesus Christ, was sinless, harmless, undefiled. He was none other than the greatest man to have ever lived. But the two other men also captured my attention this morning. We read just a moment ago how the one unrepentant thief railed on Jesus. He blasphemed Jesus. He cursed Jesus. He was mocking. He was indignant. And he makes a statement that many unbelievers make in verse 39. Did you catch the statement that he said in verse 39? He said, one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, if thou be, the, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Now that's an important statement. If thou be, if thou be Christ, 
save thyself and us. If you look up that statement in the Bible or statements close to that, you will find that there's a very select group of people that use that statement and make that statement. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter four, you would find that Satan made that statement to Jesus when he said, if thou be the son of God, command that this stone be made bread. If you study the ministry of Jesus, you would find that the Jewish leaders made that statement during Jesus's ministry in John chapter 10, when, he, when they said to Christ, if thou be the Christ. You would find at the end of Jesus's ministry, the uh, Roman soldiers made that statement. In Luke chapter 23, they said, if thou be the king of the Jews. And unbelieving scoffers made that statement to Jesus in Matthew 27, when they said, if thou be the son of God. And so here, this unrepentant thief joins a group of unbelievers spearheaded by Satan himself in Matthew chapter four, when he said, if thou be the Christ. If you're God, if you're Christ, in essence, prove it to me. You see, the unbelieving world has always wanted Jesus to bow down to what they wanted in life. The unbelieving world has always scoffed at Christ. They've always said, if you're really Jesus, do this, this, and this. I've heard of unbelievers uh, requesting and requiring all types of things from God. Understand, God bows to no one. He doesn't have to prove anything to you. In fact, he proves so little to you that the Bible simply starts out with, in the beginning, God. Notice what this unbelieving scoffer who's in hell today, notice what he says in verse 39. He says, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Notice what he asked for. He asked for salvation. He said, save thyself and us. Isn't that interesting that he wanted to be saved? But notice there's no repentance there's no acknowledgement of his sin, no acknowledgement of who Jesus is as the Son of God. There's no remorse for his past sins. There's no request for mercy. There's no faith, no sorrow, no humility, just an angry, proud, arrogant man. If thou be the Son of God, save thyself and us. See, people have always wanted to add God to their already sinful life. People have always wanted God's salvation on their terms, and this man is no different. He wanted God's salvation on his terms. Save thyself and us. Save me. I don't want to change anything, but I want to be saved. And that's what the, uns that's what the unsaved and unbelieving world has always done. Understand something. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But that salvation comes to you on God's terms, not on yours. And salvation to this man could have come to him, but he wanted it on his terms, not God's, and God doesn't play that way. You see, this man wanted nothing to do with true repentance. He simply wanted to add Jesus to his sinful life. And that is not how Bible repentance works. You see, true faith in Christ, it's like a two-sided coin. On one side of that coin is biblical faith, heart-changing faith, life-changing faith. Not faith like, hey, I believe that George Washington was the first president. Not that kind of faith. Faith that goes from your mind to your heart, it is life-changing faith. On the other side of that coin, it's the same coin, on the other side of that coin is biblical repentance. You see, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate the two. This man wanted to add Jesus to his life, but he didn't want to repent. And faith and repentance can only be separated in a class or in a conversation. From a practical standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, they cannot be separated. For a person to have real faith, he also has real repentance. And for a person to have real repentance, he also has real faith. And that's why the Bible sometimes speaks of only faith or only repentance 
as being required for salvation. That's why the Bible does that. It's two sides of the same coin. That's why the Bible summarizes it in Acts chapter 20 when, when God talks about salvation being repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. It takes both. There are two sides to the same coin. But there was a third man. We talked about Barabbas, who was replaced by Jesus. We talked about the unrepentant thief. But I want to finish most of my message on the other man that was there, the third man. We call him the dying thief, the repentant thief. Notice his perspective on Jesus Christ. The Bible says in verse 40, he corrects the, 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 the unrepentant thief, casts dispersions. The Bible uses the word railed on Jesus. Notice Jesus doesn't even so much as respond. And in verse 40, the, un, the, the repentant thief, the dying thief, steps in to defend Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 40. It says, but the, other, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. You see, this man, he too was a thief. In fact, he was a terrible thief. This person was a terrible human being. He was so bad that Rome thought he needed to be crucified. Listen, you don't just crucify an average thief. You don't do that. You crucify the worst of the worst. Even Rome wouldn't have crucified a run-of-the-mill thief. This man had robbed people. He no doubt had led with Barabbas in the same insurrection. These three people probably knew each other well, Barabbas and these two thieves. And so this thief, he was, on, he was close to the same level as Barabbas. That tells you how bad he, how bad he really was. He had robbed people. He had defrauded people. No doubt he had run with Barabbas. But this man, who cursed the Roman guards during his own crucifixion, this man, who in Matthew 27 initially also cursed Jesus Christ, this man began to consider one last time his own life. This man, at the point of death, at death's doorway, every drop of blood that fell to the ground from this man's body, was he was one step closer to dying. And that caused him to examine his life one last time. Death has a way of doing that. Amen. Death has a way of when you examine your own mortality, it has a way of bringing to light your relationship with God. And God in his goodness, God in his grace, God in his mercy did that to this man. He, God pricked this man's heart one last time to see if he wanted to respond to Jesus Christ. And this man did just that. You see, this man watched Jesus die. This man watched Jesus get crucified. This man watched Christ get dropped into that hole as he hung upon that cross and had Christ's body ring out in pain. And he watched Jesus, the Son of God, say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this man's heart was pricked when Christ said that. This man knew how he had felt and the anger that he had toward those same Roman guards. And he looked at Jesus and he said, nobody dies like that. He looked at Jesus and said, nobody has a heart like that man has. You see, this dying man was unique among mankind because possibly, we don't know this, possibly there's no other person in heaven that understands what it's like to be crucified like Jesus did. This dying thief knew what Jesus was going through. This dying thief 
knew the pain of the nails. He knew the pain of public nakedness. He knew the anger of not being in control. So many things that Jesus was facing in that moment, this man knew. This man understood. And this man knew what he would do to those men if he could get off the cross. He would kill them. And he looked at Jesus and said, that is not a normal man. That is not a mere man. That must be God. And that changed his perspective on who Jesus was. You see, this dying man knew he would never forgive like Jesus did, which meant Jesus was different than him. Jesus had something that this man didn't have. Whatever Jesus had, this man wanted. And so this dying, condemned man changed his attitude toward Jesus Christ. Instead of mocking him, which is what he did a moment ago in Matthew 27, he studied him. Instead of cursing him, in verse 40, he defended him. Instead of demeaning him, in verse 42, he talked with him. And this is what the dying thief found out, that Jesus is the savior of the entire world. This dying thief found out that Jesus was not just the savior of the entire world. He found out that Jesus was his savior. And this dying thief found repentance and forgiveness quite literally at the cross. Notice the repentance of the dying thief in verse 40. The Bible says, the other answering rebuked him saying, dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. Notice he acknowledges God in his life. He says, don't you fear God? He acknowledges his sin. He says, we indeed justly. He says, we did it. He acknowledges that he deserved to die. He said, we, we, uh, the, the, where's he said in verse 41? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward. He, he acknowledges God, he acknowledges his sin, he acknowledges that he deserved to die. That is biblical repentance. Listen, this man was dying and he knew he deserved it. This man was dying and he knew he had nothing to offer Jesus Christ. He couldn't offer Jesus Christ a simple thing. All he could do was turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. And that's what he does in verse 42. He says, and he he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Did you see what he did? He called him Lord. That means this man put Jesus on the throne of the universe. Did you notice what he said? He said, remember me. That means this man put Jesus on the throne of his own heart. Did you see what else he said? He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. That means this man recognized that Jesus should be on the throne of David. This man knew something about the Bible. This man who was gloriously saved, notice what the Bible says in verse 43. Jesus said, verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. This man who woke up in the morning, nailed to a cross in the evening, was wearing a crown. This man woke up that day as an enemy of God. He died as a friend of God. In the morning, he woke up in a Roman jail cell, and by sundown, he was in a heavenly mansion. In the daytime, he was dying as a criminal against Rome, but he ended up as a citizen of heaven. He lived and died, and to this very day, nobody knows his name. His name is not given because his name is unimportant. You see, his name is not given because this man is the figurehead for a body of people. You see, this man that was crucified, was the first man ever saved by the crucified Christ. And this man 
would be representative of every man that ever got saved. This man is unnamed because this man quite easily could have been named Joe Clawwater, Josh Miller, Randy Adams, Don Kaler. This man is unnamed because this man represents every man that's ever been saved. If you are a saved person today, this man represents you. This man is you. I want us to consider the statement that this man spoke to Jesus and one statement that Jesus made to this man as the sinless son of God. Notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Notice that word verily. That word verily means truly. It means when Jesus says verily or verily or verily, that means Jesus is saying what I'm about to say is fact. Now everything Jesus said was fact. But when he uses the word verily, you mark it down, the world's going to disagree with it because what he is about to say is a dividing line. <clears throat> and here he says, verily. He says, verily, I say unto thee. Now that phrase, I say unto thee, is interesting because it's a statement of authority. If you have more than two kids, you understand this, where you send one of your children to the other child to tell them to go do something. And the first child who goes in their own authority tells the other kid to do something. The other kid, they don't care. Like that first kid means nothing to them. But if you say to the first kid, you tell them dad said so, you tell them mom said so, when that first kid goes to the second kid, that kid is carrying an authority that is not their own. And so when Jesus said, I say unto thee, he is carrying an authority there. Listen, Peter was a man of authority. This ain't Peter's authority. Paul was a man of authority. This is not Paul's authority. You name the man, you name the woman in the Bible that carried authority or carries influence for you. This is not that person. This is none other than God himself. He says, verily, he says, I'm about to say something. I say unto thee. This is a statement of authority. The vast majority of times, if you look up in the New Testament, when somebody says, I say, the vast majority of times, it is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And he is going to speak to this dying thief. He says in verse 43, he says, Verily I say unto thee. Notice it is not ye, it is thee. It's one of the reasons we use the King James Bible, because that word thee is important. Jesus was not making the statement to both thieves. He was making the statement to one thief. This was a personal statement for one man. This was a statement for one thief. This was not ye, this is, this is thee. When he said, I say unto thee, he was speaking to the dying thief that was unnamed. See, Jesus came for all mankind, but he comes for you personally. Jesus Christ died for the world, but Jesus Christ died for this thief personally. That's why Jesus said, I say unto thee. Jesus Christ wants to speak to you personally. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever get up in the morning and open your Bible and desire for Jesus to speak to you personally? Do, do you ever come to church and sit in Sunday school class, or the morning service, or the evening service, or the Wednesday night Bible study, uh, wherever it might be, do you ever sit there and think to yourself, I want God to speak to me personally. Yes, I want him to speak to our church, but I want him to speak to me personally. This morning, you had the opportunity to have Jesus Christ speak to you personally. And I think we would probably be ashamed 
if I asked everybody to stand up who opened up this book and had God speak to them personally. We theoretically say, I want God to speak to me personally. But practically, every day where we live, how often do we pick up the book? How often? Think about this. You open this book, you have opened the mind of God. That, that's what, this is the mind of God. I wonder what God thinks about something. Look it up. This is what God thinks about something. God wants to speak to us personally. Did you read this book personally this morning? Did you come to church this morning asking God to speak to you personally? But his statement doesn't end there. Notice what Jesus says in verse 43. He says, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. You know what he said to the man? He said, listen, man, you're dying. Jesus said, you're going to go to heaven today. Now, I'm not going to sit up here and debate with you where the third heaven is versus paradise <coughs> versus heaven in the Old Testament. This much I know. Wherever Jesus was, this man was. That, that's what I know. Wherever this man went, Jesus went. Wherever Jesus went, this man went. He said, Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me. He ended that day in paradise with Christ. Now notice, he, Jesus didn't take him off the cross. This man still had to experience the consequences of his sins. Let, let that thought sink in. This man was not relieved of his pain. His life choices brought about his pain. Jesus did not take him off the cross. Jesus did not relieve his pain. His choices brought upon his pain. But as far as his soul was concerned, his soul was safe. This man's pain was not relieved, but from this point forward, this man had Christ walking with him through the pain. This, pain, this man's pain quite literally was not as severe as it could have been because Christ was now with him. The pain was there. It wasn't gone, but it was not as bad as it could have been. These men, both of them, they're figureheads. Because all of us, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you're a thief. You're a thief who eventually must die. One day, your heart will beat its last beat. One day, your lungs will take their last breath. One day, your eyes will close the final time. Every single one of us will die. Everybody in this room understands that. We've all experienced death to some degree. Every one of us are dying thieves just like these two men. The difference between us is not whether we are thieves or not. We are. The difference is, is which of these two thieves are we? The repentant thief or the unrepentant thief? The difference between us is not whether we die to sin or whether we will die in sin. Listen, the difference is do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? This repentant thief, he knew Christ as Savior. He died and went to heaven. The unrepentant thief, he died in his sin. He is in hell to this very day. So what are some practical lessons that we can learn from this statement of Jesus to this repentant thief? Notice the statement. Verily, verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Well, the first thing that I see that we can learn is that salvation is offered to anyone. I want you to think about this. Salvation, in this case, was offered to the worst of the worst sinner. Nobody in this room was as bad of a person as this thief was. Nobody. Now, you've stolen. You and I, we're thieves. You've stolen 
<coughs> whether it's an actual object or downloaded music illegally, you name what you've done. All of us have stolen something. You've cheated on a test. You have taken something that is not yours. If you think you have not stolen, then you also don't know that you're a liar as well. Everybody in here is a thief. <clears throat> and I hear people say, well, you, you know, I don't know that I can get saved. You don't know the things that I've done. Listen, you don't know the things that this man did. Whatever you have done is not as bad as this man. This man was quite possibly, outside of Barabbas, one of the worst men uh, in that area, hanging on the cross next to Jesus Christ. And Jesus' blood forgave this man, which means salvation, when it's offered, the blood of Christ can forgive anything or the blood of Christ can forgive nothing. You cannot have it both ways. You can't have that the blood of Christ forgives 80 or 90% of sins, but there's this elite type of sin that the blood of Christ can't forgive. You don't get to do that. It's either Christ's blood covers and cleanses and washes everything away, or Christ's blood washes nothing away. And so the first thing that we see is that salvation is offered to any man. God doesn't pick and choose who he offers his salvation to. The other thing that we see by Christ's statement is that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. He says, today you're going to be in paradise. This man never got baptized. This man never had a chance to make some sort of man-made sacrament at some church. This man never gave a dime to the synagogue or the temple or our church in our case. This man never did a single religious act, which means this man got saved the same way you got saved if you're saved. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It always has been and it always will be. What else do we see by this? Well, Jesus said, verily I say it unto thee. That word thee, remember we talked about that, that's important. That means salvation is not accepted by everyone. That means the other thief, he didn't accept this salvation. This repentant thief received salvation. He received forgiveness. The other one is still dead and in hell today. <clears throat> you see that both within moments died. Within moments of each other. The Roman soldiers broke their legs. They hung there. And within moments, they would have died together. One immediately went to be with the Lord. The other immediately went to hell. And that man in hell, understand something. From the, from, the, from the day that this happened until this very moment, that man in hell has never slept. He has never had a drop of water. He has, he has been in complete darkness, complete loneliness. At this very moment, that man is conscious and wailing because of the pain that he is in. Salvation is not accepted by everyone. It's offered to everyone. It is not accepted by everyone. And that thief went to hell, and tragically, he is still there. What do we see in this moment? We see God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously the most significant person that has ever lived. And on either side of them are these two crosses, which signify these men are the figureheads of all mankind that would live for the last 2,000 years. One of them is the repentant thief who was dying in his sins and reached out for Christ. If you're saved, you are in that group. The other is the unrepentant thief. Still a thief, still dying, but refuses to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. 
You see, the repentant thief, like I said, is the figurehead. He represents all people of all ages, good men like Noah, David, and Peter that received the Lord. He actually also identifies and represents bad men like Lot, King Manasseh, and himself, the thief on the cross, that were actually bad men in life that still received the Lord. Because you get to heaven not by being good or bad. You get to heaven by what you do with Christ. <clears throat> and even bad men like Lot, Manasseh, and this thief on the cross got to heaven not because of their goodness, but because of Christ. And the unrepentant thief in the same way, they go to, head not, they go to hell not because they're bad, but because they reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, they may go to hell to pay for their sins, but that's not why they went there. They went there because they rejected Christ as their Savior. And this morning, you get to choose which group of these you'd like to line up with. This morning, you choose which man will represent you. Remember, you don't have a great option here. Both are thieves. Both are dying. <laughs> these aren't good guys, but you know what? Neither are we. It's just that one called out to Christ in his last moments. Are you going to do that? Have you called out to Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Tragically, please hear me. Some of you are going to die and go to hell because you have not called out to Christ as Savior. You, some of you think because you go to a Baptist church, some of you think because you prayed a prayer sometime when you were younger, some of you think that you're saved. You, the devil, somebody has given you a false assurance of salvation. And I'm not trying to talk you out of your salvation. I'm not doing that at all. I'm simply saying, I would not want to go to hell from a church like this. I, I, I wouldn't want to go to hell, period, let alone knowing that you've heard the gospel message week in and week out from behind this pulpit. Please don't be that person. Like I said, this morning, the issue is not, are you a thief or not? You are. The issue this morning is not, are you dying or not? You are. The issue is, are you a repentant thief? Did you call out to the Lord? Or are you an unrepentant thief? One who is going to arrogantly die in your sin, just like that unrepentant thief did. It's kind of an interesting thought. While in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you've read your Bible often, you know this phrase. Jesus is, the Bible says, in an agony, and he's talking to God, his Father. And Jesus, he went to the cross, but in his flesh, he didn't want to. And we know that because Jesus says to God, his Father, he makes a statement. He says, not my will, but thine be done. Which means Jesus had a will. And in that moment, because of the separation from God, because of the physical torment, because of all that he would endure, in that moment, he didn't want to do that. That's why he said, not my will. He had a will. But then Jesus immediately said, but not my will, but thine be done. And one of the things I've come to realize in my Christian life is that every single person says that same thing to God or God says that same thing to every single person. You say, what do you mean? On every issue of life, Every day of your life, you either say to God, not my will, Lord, but thine be done. And you submit to the Father. Or on every, on every issue of life, every day of life, God says to you, not my will, but thine be done. And he lets you live your life however you want. He's not going to step in and stop you. He, he is not going to force you to live for him. He's not going to force you to serve him. That dying thief went to hell because he looked, 
He, he, he didn't want to do God's will. And so God looked at that unrepentant thief and God said, not my will, but thine be done. And that man died and went to hell. Whereas the repentant thief looked at Christ and said, not my will, but thine be done. And he got saved. Two thieves, both condemned. The one to this very day has had no pain, no hurt, no heartbreak. He has had perfect fellowship with Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years. And the other, no water, no food, no conversation, no night, I'm sorry, no light, no relief, nothing but utter torment for 2,000 years. And the choice is yours as to which one of these thieves you will be. You see, one thief died in sin and one thief died from sin. Which thief will you be? The choice truly is up to you. Father, thank you for the opportunity and privilege you've given to us this morning to come to your house to hear your word preached, to open up your book, to open up quite literally the mind of God. And Father, I pray for this invitation in a special way. Father, I pray that as you move up and down the rows here, Lord, that you would convict sinners that they need to be saved. Lord, that you would comfort those who are saved. And Lord, speak to their hearts in the very uh, uh, clear way that they need to be dealt with. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for being our best friend. Thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for this story of these two thieves, both thieves, both died, but one chose Christ and the other didn't. Father, this morning, I pray that people would choose Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.